Good afternoon, I'm Al Creston. Joining me right now is uh, a woman we've spoken with before, Dr. Abigail Favalli. Uh, she joined us, it uh, must be two years or so ago, when uh, she published her memoir, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. She's now published another book, which I think is of immense importance. It's called The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. And uh, Dr. Favalli uh, is a professor at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, she has just a tremendous story behind her, but she also has, I think, a great advantage of having lived right in the heart of uh, those academic institutions which have helped generate what is commonly called gender ideology. We're going to ask her to carefully take us through some of the uh, key terms in this debate. Uh, Dr. Favalli, thank you for joining me once again. Of course. I'm very happy to be back. Uh, Listeners, for people who won't remember two years ago, I hardly remember it myself. (laughs) Let's start. You started out within Protestant fundamentalism, spiritually speaking. That's true. It's I would say evangelicalism um, with some with some little fundamentalism thrown in there, but mostly mainstream evangelicalism. Yeah. And when did uh, women's issues become important to you? Because you end up going into the area called evangelical feminism. So tell me how that... Well, I think I was interested in boys and girls and women and men from a young age. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to college, the question became more pressing. And I I really, I think at that point, started a quest to better understand my, the meaning of being a woman and Mm -hmm. the dignity of being a woman. And initially, I thought that I would find that in feminism. So I encountered feminist philosophy and feminist theology. And I just really took a deep dive into that, cannonballed right into the deep end. And um, I started out as an evangelical feminist, so still taking the Bible very seriously and trying to make sure that it's correctly interpreted. Um, And then gradually, the more immersed I became in feminist theory, um, the more I I took on a postmodern worldview. Um, So a worldview that sees meaning as primarily created by human beings and meaning as socially constructed, truth Mm -hmm. as socially constructed, and that kind of became my worldview. Okay. Um, Feminism has a a long and sometimes confusing history. Um, Could you give us a quick overview of, you know, the, 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 the woman movement of the 19th century, then second wave feminism, and what we have today with postmodern uh, feminism? Sure. Yeah. So um, the first wave of feminism um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century grew out of the abolition movement to abolish slavery. um, And it was really focused on legal equality within Mm -hmm. the current political system. So giving women the right to vote, for example, the right to serve on juries. And after those rights were secured, then feminism really went dormant. It kind of dissipated um, until what we call the second wave erupted in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And in this wave, um, I would say that there was much more of a criticism of the current political system rather than simply the desire to adapt it. Mm -hmm. And it's in the second wave um, that 
feminist, the feminist movement becomes really aligned with the pro-abortion movement, which right. until this point had been very much um, helmed by men. Um, so that alliance, I think, is one of the key features of second wave feminism. And then third wave feminism, like you said, is when feminism really took on um, a post postmodernism and postmodern perspective and it became much more about blurring boundaries and um, questioning gender and um, that's when we begin to see some of the philosophies I think that have become really prevalent today. Is, so does feminism have a consistent philosophical undergirding because it seems to float? That's a great question. Um, actually, I I think that it doesn't. So I, from what I understand and from what I've really gleaned in my years studying feminism is that the different strands of feminism tend to be grafted onto other philosophical systems. So that's why you have liberal feminism and Marxist feminism and postmodern feminism, because feminism itself doesn't have a lot of philosophical content. It borrows that from other systems. When you moved from evangelical feminism to more secular feminism, what what drew you? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, oh, that's a good question because I often, when I think about that transition, it's less about um, maybe desire driving me so much as it almost felt it almost felt more like a falling away, if that makes sense. I think the more immersed I became in feminism, the more I adopted what is called a hermeneutics of suspicion. Yes, and that's basically a way of reading the world, of re- reading everything—reality, the Bible, God, social interactions—through this lens of suspicion. It's like you're on the hunt for sexism. You know, like yes, you think yes. you're constantly on the scavenger hunt for sexism because you already have have taken on the premise that it's at work somehow in every interaction. And so then I think, I think that's really what changed my worldview because that became the totalizing way that I saw everything. Um, and so that I think became a wall between my heart and God, uh, because you can't really love or trust someone that you're deeply suspicious of. Right. Um, and I had really by then reduced God to an idea, like mm-hmm. a kind of a patriarchal idea that mm-hmm. I was trying to rehabilitate in some way as a feminist. Yeah. Years ago, I used to do a talk on second wave feminism in which I looked at the backgrounds of some of the, the foremothers, uh, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Kate Millett, mm-hmm. Jermaine Greer. And I noticed in their cases, uh, they had often irregular uh, and dysfunctional relationships with men, whether it's a father or a husband or a boyfriend or a lover. Um, did you, does, is second wave feminism a reaction to being badly mistreated? Hmm. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, I think I think that it's probably complicated, but certainly in general, I think feminism is an attempt, it's a response to some very real problems. Yeah. 
okay. that exist, right? Whether that's interpersonal or whether that's more social. Right. But even from, say, a Catholic perspective, you know, if we look at the consequences of the fall as they're articulated in Genesis 3, mm-hmm. you know, we see this, this dynamic of communion and harmony between the sexes. Once sin enters the picture, it becomes corrupted into a dynamic of domination. And so I think feminism is, is this attempt to try to respond to that yep. that ethics of or that that um, dynamic of domination that always I think is in in danger of sneaking into the relationships between men and women. Mm-hmm. But the problem is I think that that feminism often doesn't correctly diagnose it, um, nor often offer the best kind of responses to it. Right? I mean, the, again, maybe the best example is abortion. So feminism has since the second wave championed abortion as a as a means for women's empowerment, but Unfortunately, that's actually not a solution. It's a solution that, so-called solution that scapegoats the female body, that scapegoats pregnancy, that conveys the idea that women have to become as much like men as possible to flourish. Um, So that's an ironic kind of twist that a movement that's supposed to be pro-woman would also have this deep suspicion and kind of anxiety about motherhood Mm -hmm. and pregnancy and femaleness. I had the opportunity to interview Gloria Steinem uh, years ago, but um, I'd heard that she had said something to the effect of uh, abortion is the sine qua non of modern feminism. Uh, Without abortion, you don't really have feminism. And I asked her that, and she said, yeah, abortion is Uh the sine qua non of modern feminism. No abortion, no modern feminism. That's, That's actually quite wild when you think about it. It is quite wild, and if I can even jump off of that point to make Please. a connection to what's going on right now, I something I am noticing and kind of observing is that the pro-abortion rhetoric that is used by feminists or just people on the left in general in general is very much um, rooted in rhetoric about women's rights. Okay, so abortion is a woman's right. This right. is about women. This is about empowering women. So that's that's all that it's about. That's their, their primary rhetoric there. But then the, the pro-transgender rhetoric is about weakening the relationship between womanhood and femaleness. Right. So there's a real tension there yep. that I think in a deep contradiction because the pro-abortion rhetoric depends upon strengthening, like the, emphasizing that, hey, women are female. Women are the ones that get pregnant. Like this is a women's issue. But then in the next breath, in the next sentence, when they're trying to defend more of a, um, a gender identity theory, then you have to suddenly say, oh, actually, it's not just <laughs> women aren't necessarily female, right? right? So there's this deep contradiction. Yep. Um, so I think fem- the feminist movement today is having a bit of an identity crisis. Yeah, um, that's a great about, point. You know, you can't, you can't have much of a, a movement championing women if you can't agree on what a woman is. Yeah, yeah. That's... Could you could you describe um, for a lot of us who don't you know don't really spend time in the world of academia and we don't know the ins and outs of the conversation we end up hearing you know things like well you can't even define what woman is and of course it sounds absurd uh, to those of us who are kind of not initiated into the uh, the world of academia how in the world does do we lose the ability to 
uh, I, in some ways, trust the evidence of our senses that this is a, this is a woman, this is a man. How, how do we get so far removed from our kind of primitive uh, experience? Right. Well, I think I think it's a complicated story, and that's the story I try to tell in this book, The Genesis right. of Gender. Um, but I would say to kind of name two two central, I think, shifts that happen, two maybe revolutions is a good way of putting it. Um, so there's this conceptual revolution. So the concept of what a woman is, the concept of gender, changes pretty drastically from the mid-1950s into now. And then there's also, at the same time, unfolding a contraceptual revolution where our culture embraces contraception and that becomes the norm. And I think that that shift in our material condition as men and women has changed how we think of manhood and womanhood. So manhood and womanhood is no longer about procreative potential. Now it's about what you look like, what role you play, and it's something that can be more easily um, appropriated. Uh, If you would hold it there, uh, Abigail, we'll come back and continue the conversation there uh, as we're trying to get uh, an understanding of how we lost the capacity to recognize man and woman. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Abigail Favalli, The Genesis of Gender. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Abigail Favalli, author most recently of The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, published by Ignatius. Uh, before the break, I had asked the question of how, and again, this is, uh, there's a long story here, but we're trying to, you know, stay focused um, on two aspects. How did we move mm-hmm. from being able to say, oh, that's a woman, that's a man, and you pointed out that there was kind of the erosion of the old framework in which uh, bodily sex referred to the person as a whole. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so a woman and a man were both characterized by their generative roles. Is, is that, yeah. the, that's the older framework. Yes, exactly. And so I think contraception weakened that. But then there's also, I'm sorry if you can hear my kids screaming in the background. This is a Catholic show, so I just want you to know that they're okay, but there's something going on out there. That's all right. um, So the other side is this conceptual revolution. So um, this concept of gender entered the scene in the 1950s. And in the world of academia, you often hear, well, gender is a social construct. Right. right. So there's this idea that we're not born women, but we're kind of created or we like society shapes us into being women. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness, my children. Oh, yeah. But then I think what's happening, though, that the way this plays out, then, as these ideas trickle down from academia into popular culture, is that, you know, young people especially, they're absorbing this idea that, oh, well, sex and gender are just social constructs. So you can you can identify however you want based on how you feel. Yeah. Right. And so that's that I think is this gender identity theory. Right. So gender or one's, you know, one's womanhood or manhood is based on a subjective self-perception and and. And has nothing really to do with the body, except that you then have to kind of style the body to align with that inner self-perception. 
sometimes just through clothes, but sometimes increasingly, unfortunately, through invasive and risky medical procedures. Right, right. Well, gender dysphoria is a a phrase that's become popular and well-known now. Is there an is there empirical science behind gender dysphoria? Is it a condition which can be considered in some cases permanent, but in other cases it, it resolves, you know, through maturation or through therapy? And mm-hmm. what do we actually know about gender dysphoria? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, so, gender dysphoria in the most recent version of the DSM, which is the kind of ca- the right. manual of you know psychological conditions, right. um, in the previous edition it was called gender identity disorder. So it, that's now been changed to gender dysphoria. Um, so basically, now the pathology is the distress that one feels, rather than simply just having the belief that you are a different gender. So that's an interesting shift, anyway. Mm-hmm. But so what we know about gender dysphoria is that. Um, Especially in in young people, it's it used to be much more rare, um, and there are basically kind of two primary categories. There's early onset gender dysphoria, um, and that's when a, a young child from a very young age, maybe four or so, would start to say things like, "I, you know, I'm a, you know, they're a boy, but I'm really a girl, or mm-hmm. I want to be a girl when I grow up." Things like that. Um, and then there's late onset gender dysphoria, um, and we have a, a lot of pretty solid data that when it comes to early onset gender dysphoria, at least historically speaking, so maybe until very recently, the vast majority of cases of early onset gender dysphoria would resolve by late adolescence. Okay. So up, upwards of 80% of them um, would dissipate and without medical intervention and often through the process of puberty. But now, unfortunately, what we're seeing is first, a huge shift in young people experiencing gender dysphoria. I mean, we're talking massive increase since 2014, you know, in the last decade, even if like, if we just point to UK data, um, the amount of young people, so children and adolescents seeking gender transition um, went up by almost 2000% in less than a decade. I mean, it's really incredible. Is that social Um, contagion? Yeah. Well, what I think is happening is that, I think, again, it's a complicated phenomenon, but I think there are a whole, there's a whole range of things that young people are experiencing, all a whole range of distress and anxiety and depression. And I think a small portion of that might be this classic gender dysphoria that maybe perhaps has some kind of neurological basis. But then I think the vast majority of this especially new cohort that's emerging here as having of having often late onset gender dysphoria, I think what's happening is that a wide variety of conditions or just states of mind um, are being kind of stamped with this framework. Like, oh, you're depressed or you're anxious or you feel like you don't fit in, you're lonely. Wow. Like, what's wrong with you is your gender, oh. and this is how you fix it, right? So it's it's a very compelling framework, right? Because it takes a very, probably a very complex psychological situation um, and then gives it this explanation and then a solution that says, if you fix this, you will be happy. Right. So, um, yeah, I think there's a mental health crisis among young people in general right now. That's pretty well documented Mm -hmm. in terms of rising anxiety and depression. And so I think now we have this framework that's being put onto that. Um, so I think, yes, there are cases of genuine gender dysphoria, but I also think that 
there are cases where perhaps gender dysphoria is almost takes the form of some of stress that's not even really about gender in the first place, mm-hmm. but then it becomes mm-hmm. about that, if that makes sense. And it seems at this point it's turned into an ideology of transgenderism. It, it's, so it becomes politicized. That's true, yes. It has become politicized, which is unfortunate because it be it now is very difficult to have a reasonable conversation right. about it and yeah. there are there are young people who who need us to be having reasonable conversations about it and they need us to be looking at the evidence um and they need adults to be adults <laughs> rather than um you know just basically removing all the boundaries um that have that have been in place for so long I've got a million questions I'd love to ask you, but we're not going to have time to do them all. So, but I do want to make sure that we get to a Christian, uh, a Catholic theory of gender. Uh, so, hmm. where do we begin with a, a Christian theory of gender? Right. Well, we would have to begin with Genesis mm-hmm. um, because Genesis is our cosmology. It's our sacred cosmology and our origin story. And origin stories are important not just because they tell us where we come from, but more importantly, they tell us who we are. They tell us our nature and our purpose as well as our origin. So origin stories, especially in the ancient world, are always connected to our nature, who we are, and then what we're made for. Mm-hmm. And if you look at if you look at Genesis and Genesis one and Genesis two and three, it's really amazing how much emphasis sexual difference is given. In both creation accounts, in the first Genesis one, um, that the culmination of God's creative work is creating human beings, but then the text breaks out into poetry saying that he created human beings in his own image, male and female, he created them, right? So it's, it's not just the fact that we're human, but it's more importantly the fact that we're sexually differentiated human beings. Mm-hmm. And Genesis 2 and 3, likewise, that's the culmination, right? So the first human is created, but it's still not finished. You know, God's creative work is not finished until both male and female are brought into being. Mm-hmm. And that's because for Catholics, our maleness and femaleness is an image of the Trinity. So our God is this interpersonal communion who is the source of all life. And our maleness and femaleness and our capacity for an interpersonal communion that is capable of creating new life is an image of the Trinity. It's part of how God reveals himself. So in the in the Christian understanding, sexual difference is not it's not a problem. It's not just simply a social construct, but it's part of God's self-revelation. Yeah. And it's part of how we understand who we are and what we're made for. Um, so it has so much dignity and beauty in, in the Catholic understanding, um, which I found so compelling when I became Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I wanted that sense of dignity and meaning. And I looked for it in feminism and didn't find it, um, but I found it in, in the Catholic tradition. So, yeah, and I, and I think your story is really remarkable. And so we know the fall uh, messes up everything, so, <laughs> including mm-hmm. male-female relationships. Um, how, when we, the bo- let's, go, let's go to this, the body, mm-hmm. there's a tendency today to downplay the significance of the body. Uh, whether mm-hmm. it's the use of the pill uh, in, in contraception or uh, what we're 
all the, the claim that uh, you know the uh, gender is just a social construct with no necessary connection to bodily sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, this emphasis on the body is this a fruitful? Do you see this as a fruitful area for future uh, research in uh, helping us develop a richer understanding of male and female? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Catholicism and Christi- Christianity is is very incarnational. I mean, that's, <laughs> yes, it is. You know, all the all the, the the central mysteries of our faith have to do with the body and the body being saved and, you know, God taking on a body, God sacrificing yeah. his body, God raising his body from the dead. And then us also sharing in that resurrection and even the Eucharist where God makes himself bodily present. So. Mm-hmm. The, this this high view of the body and this this idea of human nature as a unity of body and soul is central to the Christian faith, and it's always been controversial. It's always been countercultural. So I think you're exactly right. Our time denigrates the body in specific ways, but I think it's a it's a feature of many cultures and philosophies to denigrate the body, um, even in. You know, when Paul goes to preach at the Areopagus in Acts um, to the Greeks, it's when they hear about the resurrection, that's when they, <laughs> a lot of them just say, oh, no, yeah, I'm that's out, right. you know, because Greek philosophy has a very negative view of embodiment, at least Platonic philosophy. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's there's a certain calling on the Church in our time to champion the dignity of the body and the truth about the human person as a unity of body and soul. Um so, absolutely, yeah. I think that's important. Okay, here's a, a question going back to academia. Is there room in academic life today uh, for someone like yourself? I mean, you're at Notre Dame now, I think. Uh, it's a, Catholic, mm-hmm. some, a pretty Catholic school. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, but could you, would you be able to survive uh, in a, a, a thoroughly secular uh, university in a women's studies department or something? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. I think I've been, I want to say lucky, but I think it's been God's providence that yeah. he's placed me in academic environments where I was able to develop my thought in this direction. So yeah. prior to Notre Dame, I was at George Fox, which is a Christian school. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, certainly I've, you know, I've gotten pushback. I've had some, you know, protests when I've gone to speak places. But by and large, you know, I, um, I haven't, I haven't, I've had a pretty easy road, I yeah. guess. Or, okay. you know, um, and I don't know, Notre Dame's a, you know, it's a very new place for me. So I still don't totally have a sense. Um, but, but I do, wherever I am, I do try to build bridges because one of the things about my story is that I've been, I've thought about these things very differently. And even when I did, I now see the ways in which I was mistaken, but I was also coming from a sense of goodwill, yep. right? So yep. um, I really do hope that there's room for dialogue with people who think differently than I do. So, yes, I hope academia is big enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so, too. And I hope we can talk again in the near future. Abigail, thank you so much. Yeah, anytime. Thank you so much. Dr. Abigail Favalli, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Wonderful piece of work.